All right. Well, with that, as we transition into our teaching time now, I invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 13, and Heather is going to come and read our scripture reading for us. Good morning. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Thank you, Heather. Good morning, church family. How are we? It's good? Uh, my name is... <laughs> stuffed. Okay. Still? Wow. Uh, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, no, it was... Uh, Good time for relaxation for my family and I, and thank you for being here today. Here, here's, um, here's what we're doing. We're finishing out John chapter 13 today, and we've been going through the Gospel of John for a while. We really like to do that. We like to take books of the Bible and just kind of go line by line, verse by verse through them. Starting next week, we're going to be into our Advent series. This is one of those years where Thanksgiving uh, happens early in the year, uh, early in the month, and so we have an, an, an extra Sunday before Advent officially starts. So all of y'all who set up your trees early, uh, I hope you water them because they're going to die before Christmas gets here, uh, unless you have a plastic one, in which case we'll talk about that later. We already talked about judgment a few weeks ago, so no judgment, judgment-free zone here. Uh, but before we do anything else, I wonder if you join me in prayer because we really need God uh, to help us to understand and to see what he has for us today in his words. So would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to open the scriptures and to learn what it is that you have for us and to connect with you, Lord Jesus. God, for myself, I ask and I pray that you would, would help me to only say that which is truthful and what is helpful to build us up and to bring us closer to you. And God, for each and every single one of us, I ask and I pray that you would give us uh, soft hearts, teachable hearts. God, even hearts that are willing to look at hard truths about ourselves. As we look at this, this serious moment, this, this, this supper, um, where one disciple betrays and another disciple denies. God, I pray that you would help us to enter into your grace even as we look at this story and how it applies to us. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Everyone said, amen. Okay, quick show of hands, simple question. How many of you did have a nice Thanksgiving meal together? Okay, good. All right, now another show of hands. I'm gonna phrase this more vaguely so you have an out. How many of you have ever participated in a Thanksgiving meal that was, let's say, awkward? Okay, how many of you are here in the room with the person who made it awkward? I'm just kidding, right? As I was thinking about this, this passage preparing this teaching this last week, 
um, the awkward Thanksgiving. That's kind of a thing that happens, right? You know, one family member <clears throat> decides to bring up, I don't know, politics or another family member calls out another family member for not parenting their kids well or whatever kind of awkward moments can happen around that Thanksgiving meal. And that was, was thinking about that as I was preparing this teaching. We, we did not have an awkward Thanksgiving, praise the Lord. But I was thinking about this because this passage we're looking at today is a Passover meal where Jesus and his 12 disciples are gathered together for this this annual tradition of of sharing a meal together. And I don't know if you noticed it during the scripture reading, but boy, things get awkward in a hurry. And so if you can emotionally put yourself there, if if you've ever had one of those awkward family meals, awkward Thanksgiving or holiday meals, I want you to put yourself emotionally in that place in the story because I think it will help us to really resonate with what's going on. So before we dive into this passage, let's, let's back up just a little bit. So the Gospel of John is unique in a number of ways. There are, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors giving us the life and, and, and ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus. And John is different because John never gives us a list of all of the disciples, Matthew does, Mark does, and Luke does, but John never really gives us the comprehensive list. And so we haven't looked at that as we've been going through the Gospel of John. I thought it might be helpful for a minute to just back up and remember who is all there at this meal. So the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, by the way, quick show of hands. Uh, we put it up on the screen. It's fine. How many of you, be honest, you, can, you don't have to be fake humble. How many of you would have been able to recite all 12 of the apostles, even if they weren't up on the screen? Anybody? Maybe, sort of. I don't think I could have. Uh, I'd probably, you know, like John, Paul, George, Ringo. Like I'd get derailed pretty early on. Uh, I actually had two different people came up to me after the nine o'clock service and started singing to me a song that they learned in kids ministry to have all 12 of the disciples of Jesus. And I was like, my hat's off to you. You, are, you win the super Christian of the day award. So good job. Here are the 12 disciples of Jesus. There's, the first one is Simon who, when Jesus meets him, goes, no, nah, I don't like that. You're Peter. And so he changes his name. Peter means rock. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Simon Peter, we're going to look at extensively today. He's often listed first among the apostles, among the disciples. And by the way, disciple just means a student or a learner, one who, one who follows. And then we also see this word apostle, which means one who is sent, like a, like a messenger, like an ambassador. And those words get used interchangeably. So Simon Peter and then his brother, Andrew. So Simon and Andrew, or Peter and Andrew, the first pair of brothers. And then there's another pair of brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They also get a nickname, the sons of thunder, which that's such a cool nickname. And John, presumably the one that we're looking at here, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, John is the one that we believe and understand to be the author of this gospel that we're reading. He also authored those letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, And I believe he authored the book of Revelation as well. Some scholars disagree, but I'm fairly convinced that he wrote those those books of the Bible as well. So Simon and Andrew, James and John, and then there's a guy named Philip. And Philip, you'll notice that lots of these guys have alternate names. There's different names kind of given for them. Philip has no alternate names. He's just always Philip. You would expect a guy named Philip to just be like right down the middle, no frills, but just, I'm just Philip. And so he's like, Phil? He's like, no, Philip, right? Then we get Bartholomew, who in the Gospel of John is called Nathaniel. And and by the way, sometimes people will 
critique the Bible or they'll say, oh, this is why you can't believe the Bible because you can't even get the list of names straight. Have you ever, anybody here known somebody who kind of went by like their last name? You know, somebody who, who had like a distinctive last name. Um, we have one of our musicians. Where, where's John? Is John here? John plays guitar. Yeah, there you go. Father Gill. Well, that's a cool last name. And we have like 11 Johns that serve in music and production. So like, you are now just Father Gill. And that's just what we call him. Bartholomew is a last name. Bartholomew, Bar is the son of Tholomew. You all, you all have a friend named Tholomew, right? Bartholomew is a last name and Nathaniel would appear as his his first name. But the three, Matthew, Mark, and uh, uh, Luke, call him Bartholomew, and in John, he's known as Nathaniel. We also get Thomas, who's called the twin. We don't know where his brother is, or maybe sister, it's just the twin, like by himself, that's weird. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, who is also called Levi. And by the way, just as you're thinking about potential awkwardness, put into your categories there, Levi or Matthew, the tax collector, he is on the payroll of the Roman government. Tax collectors were very often hated and despised because it was their job to go to their fellow Jewish countrymen and take money away from them and give it to Rome. Immediately after Matthew, well, we have uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, who is a different James. So we already had a James, the son of Zebedee. This is a different James. And then we've got Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. So this is a different Simon. We've got two Jameses. We've got two Simons. Simon the Zealot. That term, the Zealot, is a political term. And what it means is that he was part of a political party that was pro using military force to overthrow the Roman government and to resist the oppressors. So you have in Jesus' inner circle, like, like quite literally, a guy who would be like a, like a Montana militia member and a guy who works for the IRS. Do you, like, do you think there was any opportunities for you know, heated discussion and debates? I mean, best we can tell, Simon never knifed Matthew, so that's good. Then you've got a guy who is called, his name is Judas, the son of James, but surprise, he didn't like to go by the name Judas, so he went by the name Thaddeus. And by the way, he's the son of James, not either of those James, another James. And there's also another James that shows up in the book of Acts, who's Jesus' brother, and he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So like, there's just Jameses everywhere, okay? It's like the Mary of boys' names, okay? And then lastly, Judas... Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus. His last name, scholars debate whether that's a reference to the region where he's from or possibly a play on the Greek word sakarios, which means assassin. Scholars can argue it kind of both ways. But the one day, the one thing that they all agree on is that he is the one who betrayed Jesus, and he's looked at entirely unfavorably by the writers of all four Gospels. So here's the 12 men. Think about these 12 individuals. Some, all, hand-selected by Jesus to be part of his group of 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. This is a, this is a loaded statement. 
Jesus is making a claim to be the Messiah, like the King of Israel. And for the better part of three years, what have they been doing? Traveling together, listening to Jesus teach, listening to Jesus preach, witnessing miracles, sitting together in in private alone times with the rabbi, talking about the deepest things in life, God and faith and, and, and belief and my goodness, how, how close do you think they would be? Oh, by the way, they've experienced a lot of opposition along the way. The religious leaders didn't like them. Certain people in certain towns didn't like them. Is there anything that brings a group of people together, especially men, quite like walking through opposition together? How close must they be? Some of you spent your Thanksgiving with with family or or close friends. I would just argue that however close you might be, there is a likelihood that they might have even been closer. Loving each other, sticking up for each other, seeing things that just blew their minds. And now they're settling in for a nice Passover meal, this annual tradition where the, the people of Israel look back and remember when God freed them out of slavery in Egypt the lamb has been cooked and the, the, the unleavened bread has been served and they're sitting down together. And in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So Jesus starts to get upset. And he said, he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Passover meal, sitting down together, boom. Now the awkwardness has started. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. It's like, did you, did you hear what he just said? What, who's he talking about? One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. You guys may have seen in certain movies or paintings, the, you'd see pictures of like the Roman emperors and they would be eating, they would lay down. They have like these couches and pillows, they would lay down, usually lay on their left arm and that keeps your right hand free for eating. And that practice ended up spreading throughout the Roman Empire and actually uh, found its way into Israel. And so uh, they would eat on low tables, not sitting up in a big tall chair. Sorry, you know, Last Supper, picture, all that. It's, it's low, they're laying, they're reclining. And it says there's this one disciple who's actually like leaning up, reclining at Jesus' side. And he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And most scholars believe that this is our author, John, referring to himself. Which disciple? Oh, the one that Jesus loved. I thought he said he loved all his disciples. Yeah, well. So Simon Peter Motion to him. John, hey, ask him who he's talking about. Who's going to be, no, no, you ask him. I always ask the dumb questions. You ask him. You're leaning up against him. Just like, ask him. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. 
So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, it's a little hard to know from context. Did Jesus say that loud enough for everyone to hear? Or did he only say it loud enough for John to hear? Not entirely sure. But he answered. He wasn't being um, dodgy. He wasn't being completely unclear. Lord, who, who is it? Jesus, maybe, maybe Jesus leaned over to John and kind of said it to him and then turned and handed the bread to Judas. And then after he, Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. The Bible is clear that, that Judas betrayed Jesus. What's unclear is his motivation. We see here in our passage today that Judas was in charge of the money bag. He was the treasurer. We see a little bit later in, in, in upcoming chapters that, that Judas had been stealing money. He was in charge of the, the ministry funds, as it were, and yet he was a crooked treasurer stealing from the money bag. So, so scholars and, and Bible teachers sometimes speculate a little bit. Maybe he was just motivated by greed. He just wanted money. He just wanted that 30 pieces of silver. Others will speculate and say, maybe he was, maybe he was just disillusioned with this Jesus uh, movement. He was expecting more of a political uprising. He was on team Simon the Zealot and he didn't like all this. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is, is different than the kingdoms of this earth thing. Maybe, maybe he had other motivations. We don't ultimately know, but what we do know is that that even with his own motivations and his own thoughts, the devil is involved here. And Judas had so succumbed to evil, evil thoughts, that the Bible can use this strong language of Satan entering into him. He's not, it's like he doesn't even belong to Jesus. Possessed by the devil. Which is actually, you know, demon possession or devil possession. That's not even a phrase that is used in the Bible, in the Greek. It just says demonized. But here, John goes even farther to say that Satan entered into him. And so Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. You know, sometimes when we, when we um, experience betrayal, something shocking happens, someone, someone does something, how, how common is it, how often is it that we hear people say things like, I would never have expected that. As a pastor, I've sat with people in my counseling office, maybe after an affair or, Something like that. I would never have expected that my spouse would have done this. You see on the news sometimes, maybe after, after some, you know, one of these tragic shootings and, and the people who lived next door to the, to the murder, I would never have expected that. These disciples are sitting here in this room. Jesus is talking relatively openly about someone betraying him. Judas gets up and Jesus looks at him and says, you got to go do it quickly. And they're still kind of coming up with explanations for for what's going on. I, I think, I think that it's kind of like that for the disciples. We could never have imagined one of us betraying Jesus. After all we've been through, after all we've walked through these last three years, 
ministering together, teaching together, learning together, facing opposition together, it just doesn't make sense. So will Judas go through with it? How's he feeling in the moment? How do you think the the other disciples are feeling in the moment? Verse 30. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. John, our author, doesn't waste words, does he? This has less to do with what time of day it is and more to do with the theological teaching that Judas has chosen darkness. The light of the world is sitting in the room with him and Judas chooses night. When he'd gone out, Jesus said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Perfectly clear? This is one of those great lines in John where like, I feel like you said the same thing six different ways and I'm completely lost. Let's break it down briefly. That phrase, son of man, is Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself. Actually, here, you know what's interesting? We have son of God, And we have son of man. These two different phrases that are used about Jesus. When we hear the phrase son of God, we tend to think, oh, he's divine. And when we hear son of man, we tend to think, oh, he's human. Because the the biblical teaching and the Christian belief is that Jesus is both God and man. He is both fully God and fully man. But you know what's interesting is those phrases, son of God and son of man, would have had the exact opposite meaning for the Jewish people of the first century. Son of God is a term that's used about Israel and specifically about Israel's king. So when they would have heard the phrase son of God, they would have thought, oh, good, a king, a human being. Son of man comes from this strange cryptic prophecy in the book of Daniel. And it's talked about, I saw one who was like a son of man and there's the ancient of days seated on the throne and the son of man came to him in the clouds and the son of man was given all authority to rule over heaven and to rule over earth. And so son of man is like this divine figure. So when we hear son of God, son of man, if you want to think biblically, just reverse them. Son of man is about his divinity. Son of God is about his humanity. The son of man is glorified. Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up. In that prophecy in Daniel, when the son of man comes before the ancient of days on the clouds of heaven, that's about to happen. It's happening now. When I go on the cross, I'll be glorified. I'll be lifted up. And... God is glorified in him. Jesus is saying, I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. This is going to show God's love, God's mercy, God's character. This is going to show what God is like. And (laughs) God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Like God's getting glory, but I'm getting glory. Who's getting glory, God or Jesus? Yes, It's another way of Jesus saying that that, that I and my father, we're we're one. 
We're, we're inseparable. You can't separate Jesus and, and God the Father. And it's going to happen at once. Like this is happening now. Little children, isn't that? It's like certain translators too. It's like, it's like my precious children. Jesus is, is adopting this language of, of love. Just, just a little while, while I'm with you, you'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, to, to those Jewish leaders he was having conflict with, now, now I say the same thing to you. Where I am going, you cannot come. Like, you can't come, but a, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, that you follow me, if you have love for one another. How many of you have heard that verse before, right? They will know we are Christians by our love. The problem is we cut it short sometimes. What does Jesus say? By our love for one another. That the Christian community is supposed to be marked by such deep love and care and devotion that people on the outside would say, I don't know what they've got, but I want some of it. There's so much love, there's so much care, there's so much forgiveness that I, looking from the outside in, I want, I want a piece of that. But Jesus, it's so interesting because Jesus says, I'm giving you this new commandment, a new commandment. In Latin, the phrase is, is mandatum novum, mandatum, like a mandate, which is where we get our phrase, Monday Thursday. This is new commandment Thursday that you love one another. But if you're like me, maybe you're thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound like a new commandment. Have you ever read the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament? It's there. Love one another. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18 says. Is it really a new commandment to love each other? Here's what's new. Jesus says, love one another, not just as you love yourself, love one another as I have loved you. That's the new part. How how has Jesus loved us? That's how we're to love one another. Sacrificial love, laying down of our lives. Remember, this is on the heels of just the, the passage we looked at last week of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. How have I loved you? What have I done? I've lowered myself to the very depths of the earth to love you. That's how you're to love one another. That's what will mark the Christian community, that kind of love. So here Jesus has now, there, there's this contrast between betrayal and love. One of you will betray me, and he instantly goes into, but I want the rest of you to be marked by deep, 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 sacrificial, self-giving love. Verse 36, Simon Peter said, of course Simon Peter said something. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus has been saying this now for a while. Just get the sense of like, Peter's like, okay, you keep saying this. Will you please explain to me what's happening? I'm not tracking with you, Jesus. Where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus is going to the cross. 
We don't see this in the scripture, but church history and tradition tells us that after Jesus died and rose and after Peter had uh, ministry and preaching the gospel, we read about in Acts that he did indeed follow Jesus into a death of crucifixion. Church history tells us that Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior Jesus, so crucify me upside down. Where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me after. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Like, will you stop this, Jesus? I will go anywhere with you. I'll do anything for you. You know, it's, it sounds like a, like, a, like, a, like a love song from the 90s. I'll climb the highest mountain. I'll swim the farthest sea. Like anywhere you go, like just tell me, Jesus, I'll go with you. Jesus, oh, really? Will you lay down your life for me? Really? Truly, truly. Oh. Jesus says that when he's speaking divine truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, we aren't even going to make it till morning before you have denied me three times. After this, we turn the corner into chapter 14. We're going to get there after the new year. Chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's four chapters uninterrupted of Jesus just teaching and praying. It's called the upper room discourse. It's a long talk that Jesus gave to his disciples. A little bit of dialogue, but mostly monologue and prayer. And just the, the thought occurred to me as I was preparing this week, do you think Peter heard a word that Jesus said in these next four chapters? You're gonna betray me three times. Deny me. And by the way, let me start teaching you about the Holy Spirit. Let me teach you about the Father. And I go to prepare a place. And I, I just, at least in my mind, just imagine Peter just, what did he say? What? Like, I, at least for me. Anybody with me? I, I'd just be sitting, I'd have all my defenses going. I'd have all my stuff. Have you ever been accused of something? I, I think of, um, you know, sometimes with our children, we'll come and say things like, you're going to fall off that edge, Right? I was like, hey, be careful. I don't want you to fall off the edge. But like this prediction, you're going to fall. And then like, bam, like, see, I told you, right? Like, but what about something more serious for you? Has anyone ever come to you? What, what, if, what if on your wedding day, the pastor finished up the ceremony and then like came up to you and looked at you and said, oh, by the way, you're going to commit adultery. Like that type of weight Peter thinks he's going to remain faithful, but we read ahead in the story, which we'll get to later, we know that what Jesus said comes true. And so there's this pairing now, very clear, between unfaithfulness or love. Can I just say it plainly? Unfaithfulness is a lot easier than love. Love is hard. Sacrifice is hard. Faithfulness is hard. It's easier to be unfaithful. It's easier to act in the moment on what will be more expedient for us. Love costs something. Real love costs something. 
Faithful love. It's really challenging. And by the way, we use this word unfaithful. I've even used it now as I'm teaching this idea of unfaithfulness. We, we use it sometimes when we say like in a marriage, a, a spouse is unfaithful to the other one. But can we just be honest? There's a lot of other things, even in a context of an affair, that were unfaithful that led to that moment. Unfaithfulness is not always the big uh, explosive thing that happens. It's often those small daily choices that we make that lead to the bigger crash and burn down the road. I, I, I sent an email out to our staff and our elders this week, and I asked them to help me just think of a list, ways that we're unfaithful. Because like Peter, I want to dig my heels in and say, no, Lord, I'm faithful to you. I want to be faithful to you. I am by nature a loyal person. I don't want to be unfaithful. I don't want to be disloyal. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we choose unfaithfulness daily. We choose unfaithfulness when we're quick to anger with a loved one. We choose unfaithfulness over love when we have an opportunity to care for the poor and we don't. When we click on that website that we know we shouldn't. When we bend the rules at work just to make it a little bit easier for ourselves. We choose unfaithfulness over love when we resent God for his loving discipline. When we run to food or alcohol or pills or something else for our comfort instead of prayer. We choose unfaithfulness over love when we road rage at some stranger we've never met. When we don't pick up our Bibles for a few months. When we lie to a fellow believer and say, oh yeah, everything in my life is great. We hold on to unfaithfulness over love when we hold on to unforgiveness. When we let our accomplishments define us. When we idolize our emotions. When we fail to tame our foul tongues and our crude words. We choose unfaithfulness when we feel superior to someone else or when we judge other people for their sins and ignore our own. When we get angry at God because he doesn't answer our prayers exactly the way we want. When we gossip and say, oh, can you believe about that person? When we tell white lies. When we find almost time to do almost anything else except for spend time with God. Oh yeah, and we choose unfaithfulness over love when we remain silent instead of sharing Jesus because we're afraid to stick out in front of non-Christians. All the commands of God, all of the the words of God. Love is hard and unfaithfulness comes oh so easily. Now, eventually, Jesus and Peter have a conversation, don't they? And they work it out. We'll get to that passage in like May. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But, In the meantime, I want you to think about this. Everything that Jesus said Peter was going to do, it came true. Eventually, they are going to work it out. But what did Jesus do even before he and Peter had a conversation and worked it out? 
Jesus died on the cross. Jesus didn't say, well, Peter, I'd like to die, but I just, I need to, I need you to come and confess and, and repent and apologize and all this stuff first. You know what's amazing? You know what's amazing, friends? In the middle of all of this unfaithfulness going on, Jesus remains faithful. Jesus never deviates from the plan. Jesus never deviates from the Father's will. Jesus never deviates from his commitment to our ultimate well-being. Jesus remains faithful despite his disciples' unfaithfulness. You know what's amazing? Is by the time this night is done, Judas has betrayed him. Yes, Peter will verbally deny him, but all of the disciples are going to scatter. Not a single one remains faithful to Jesus. Can we just be honest, friends? Not a single one of us as disciples of Jesus can say we have remained perfectly faithful. Look around this room. There are no perfectly faithful disciples in this room, but there is one perfectly faithful Savior who, like it says in Romans, even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is this good news to anybody here today? God's love is greater than our unfaithfulness. God's love is greater than our unfaithfulness. I just listed a laundry list of ways that we're unfaithful. You know what? I could keep going, but I'm not going to. I'm gonna let the spirit do his work in your heart because I want you to be able to take that unfaithfulness before God and say, here it is, God. I have been unfaithful and I'm trusting that your faithful love is greater than my unfaithfulness. It was for Peter. It was for the rest of these disciples, except for Judas who persisted to the end, the very end of his life in hard-hearted rebellion against Jesus. You know, yesterday I, um, we went to a, a bat mitzvah. Some of you remember uh, Rabbi Matt who came and preached her earlier this year. And uh, his oldest daughter was having her bat mitzvah and we went with the family and in that bat mitzvah, he was talking about God's faithful covenantal love and how it says in places like in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it says that the sins of the parents will be visited upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. How many of you know that sometimes things your parents, grandparents did affect you in your life to the third and the fourth generation, but God's love endures to how many generations? A thousand generations like you want to talk about a contrast between sinfulness? Yeah, three and four generations. It, it really is real. God's love, a thousand generations. God's love, a thousand generations. A thousand to four, right? Three or four, let's give them the four, a thousand. If you win a football game, 1,000 to four, you really won the game, okay? That's called running up the score. God's running up the score with faithful love. And there's this word in the, in the Hebrew Bible, it's chesed. And, and, and sometimes it just gets translated as love. Sometimes the, the, the different translations go back and forth on what's the best way to translate it. And the, 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 uh, the CSB translation, which I've been reading more recently, translates it as faithful love. His faithful love. Like in, in, in the book of Lamentations, chapter three, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, it says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen, church? 
Therefore, I say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. We don't put our hope in us. We put our hope in him. Let me ask you this question. How many of you would like to become a more faithful disciple of Jesus? Raise your hand. Anybody? Great. The way we do it is not by focusing on trying harder to be a more faithful disciple. The way we do it is by focusing on him and his faithfulness. So let me leave you with this. Number one, we can trust Jesus. He has proven himself to be faithful. He was faithful to Peter. He was faithful to these disciples. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to me all the way to the point of dying on the cross. Is this good news to you? So we can trust Jesus. If you're here today and you've, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I'm, I'm inviting you to place your faith in Jesus. Listen, far too many people believe this, this wrong idea that I can't come to Jesus until I've cleaned up a few things first. He already knows. What are you going to, it's like, it's like, well, never mind. I'm going to skip that analogy, but you can't, see, Lord can grow people too, right? You're watching sanctification happening right in front of you. You don't, you don't clean yourself up before you come to God. You bring exactly who you are. You can trust Jesus because he is faithful. Number two, I would say you should trust Jesus. Do you know why? Because every single other person on planet earth, including yourself, is going to let you down. Every politician that we vote into office will let us down. Every pastor that you ever follow will at some point let you down. I'm human. The other pastors are human. Every spouse that you have, every friend that you have, the children that you have, amen, parents? Everyone will at some point let you down because we all lack perfect faithfulness, but only Jesus has perfect faithfulness. So not only can we trust him, we should trust him. And then lastly is we grow by trusting in him. If you want to be more faithful, the path to faithfulness is not by trying harder to be more faithful. It's by remembering that Jesus is faithful. And paradoxically, in his inside out, up, inside out, upside down kingdom, that's actually how we grow. I want to be a more faithful husband. I want to be a more faithful father. I want to be a more faithful pastor. And if I just sit around and think, Aaron, you've got to be faithful today, it's counterintuitive. But if I pray and I say, Jesus, you are perfectly faithful, even when I am not. He'll grow in you that ability to be more faithful. <laughs> Praise God for that. In a moment, I'm going to invite Pastor Doug to come and, and lead us in a time of celebrating the Lord's table and the musicians are going to lead us in, in singing. And, and as we prepare our hearts to do this, I'm going to pray. Let's bring our hearts before Jesus now and thank him for his faithfulness. God, we confess to you that so often we are not faithful. Like Peter, like the other disciples, we choose what is convenient and easy and expedient for us. And God, we confess that we've all sinned. We've all been unfaithful to you. And Jesus, we also say that your grace and your faithfulness is bigger than our unfaithfulness. And so we want to be able to bring 
all of who we are to you now in this time of response. Jesus, may we meet with you at the table. May we meet with you in singing and in prayer. And may you grow in us to be more faithful disciples. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ern. As we transition from the sermon to communion, uh, feel free to take out and open the communion elements. As I read from 1 Corinthians, if by chance you didn't get one on the way in, there are a couple right down here or out by the door there. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Taking of the bread reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. We who are called by his name, we are no longer slaves to sin. Taking of the juice reminds us of Jesus' blood was shed for us of the great sacrifice for our sins. And though our sin is dreadful and serious, in the presence of a holy God, God sees those who are called by his name. God sees us as pure and forgiven. Paul goes on to say, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're about to take communion. Some people call it the Lord's Supper. But historically, this meal was called the Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. It seems very appropriate on this Thanksgiving weekend. Scripture tells us that we have a perfect Savior who loves us despite my failures, despite our unfaithfulness. In a moment, the band is going to lead us in worship. But before we take communion, remember the gospel. The good news that Christ came to earth, lived suffered, died, and rose again, that we might have life. Remember that we can have a relationship with a holy God, a holy God who wants to be our Father. Remember and give thanks for Jesus' faithfulness. So take time now. Pause and examine yourself. Pray, confess, repent, and then take in the elements as remember Jesus' sacrifice and faithfulness. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. We praise and adore you for your love and for your faithfulness. Help us to believe who you are and who we are in you. Help us to be those who grow and trust in your faithfulness as we cling to your word that reminds us 
Your steadfast love never ceases, and your mercies never come to an end. Father, we love you and we thank you that we are called by your name. Amen.